0: Well, good morning. What a delight to be here at Grace Church of the Valley. What a delight to be here with Pastor Scott and and others and with all of you. And uh, what a privilege to talk about the faith of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we just thank you that you have given us such a privilege even to consider these things. As the New Testament tells us, these doctrines are things upon which angels long to look, You've given us the stewardship of the mysteries of heaven. And Father, you've given us the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Jesus Christ who saves. Father, may we know all that we should receive today from this great inheritance we have received from the Scriptures through the apostles. And Father, we just thank you for loving us so much that you have not left us without a firm and certain knowledge of who Christ is. And what Christianity is. And may we know ourselves to be Christians by biblical definition to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Now, it is interesting that the very first day of my very first church history class uh, in seminary, my professor did make that assignment. Uh, but he said something before that that I'll never forget. So, that you, you've got a group of… Uh, you know twenty two year old young men training to be pastors and they show up and uh, one of the first required classes is uh, the first section as we call it of, of church history, so the very earliest period of the church and so I was so eager for this, I was so ready for this, and uh, my professor got up and uh, he looked out at the class and you know you 're going to remember the first word you hear from a professor, and this was a this was a very internationally known church historian, scholar, and, uh, and uh, he was a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School from which he'd received his THD. Now, that could worry you. Uh, but he was, an, he was committed to Christian orthodoxy. He, he, he wasn't… he was not what Harvard Divinity School was trying to turn out. He was completely committed to… Biblical Christianity, of Orthodox Christianity, and that was his commitment. So anyway, we're waiting to see what he's going to say. And he got up, and you're expecting something brilliant from the mouth of this church historian is the very first thing he's going to say. And what he said was brilliant, but it didn't sound brilliant when he said it. And the fact that I remember it now 40 years later tells you something. But he got up and he said his name, and then he said, my job is to convince you that there were Christians between your grandmother and Jesus and it matters. Well, that's actually true. Both my grandmothers were Christians but they weren't the first ones. One of them was born in the 19th century, the other in the early 20th century but there were Christians before them and it matters. That's that's actually a very helpful thought. We better find out what happened during all those centuries because it probably has a great deal to do with how we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. And so the next thing he said was, your first assignment is uh, by the next class period to memorize the Apostles' Creed. Well, I did that. And just what... what Pastor Artivana said, "Happened to me. I, I started going through this historic Christian statement and realizing, this is what Christianity is. I believe more than this, but the point is, no one can believe less than this and be a Christian." These days, if you're in the business world, they talk about it as the elevator speech. You, you know what I'm talking about, where people say, if you don't have your business distilled to what you can tell persons in a two-minute ride in an elevator, then you don't know your business. And so, in the business schools all over the country, they're trying to tell people that this is, you know, your first assignment. What is your elevator speech for your business plan? Well, I don't have an elevator speech, but Christians throughout the centuries have faced the same kind of question, and that is, how do you know what Christianity is in a hurry? Or put it the other way, how do you know what Christianity is not in a hurry? The subtitle of of my book that, that Scott generously mentioned is discovering authentic Christianity in an age of counterfeits. And all around us are counterfeits. And you don't have to look far for counterfeits. Counterfeits are coming right into your house on television. Counterfeits are all over the airways. Counterfeits are opening up here and there. And, and counterfeits can be the, the, you know, the, just a storefront that's been rented or it can be a giant white gleaming building with towers right there on the interstate. The counterfeits are, are everywhere, and you think, well, this is a, this is a real problem in the 20th century, the, the rise of these counterfeits. After all, you put it in the subtitle of your book, Discovering Authentic Christianity in an Age of Counterfeits. The 21st century, even worse than the 20th century, just think of all the counterfeits, but if you understand the world into which Christianity was born, it was an age of counterfeits. This is pretty shocking, isn't it? It's actually going to be the background of my message in the worship hour. And I don't want to preach that message now, but the point is, in the New Testament, there is ample evidence that false forms of the gospel were already being preached. That's humbling, isn't it? Even while the disciples were alive, there were false Christianities being presented. I want you to look with me at a couple of texts, and, and so let, let me just stipulate right up front. I'm, I'm not just an evangelical. I'm not just a Protestant in the great stream of Christian theology. I'm a Baptist, and I have been raised and <laughs> I stand without reservation upon the fact that the only authority by which the church is to be structured, taught, disciplined, and matured is the inerrant, infallible, verbally inspired Word of God. Our authority is the Word of God. The question we're going to be considering this morning is not the authority for our faith and beliefs. That authority is the one true and living God through the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit breathed through men of old for us. But the question is, how do you summarize the Scriptures? When we all understand, if we think about it, that we've got to summarize the Scriptures. And we're going to talk about the mandate of why that's so. And I want you to turn with me to a couple of passages that evangelicals often do not take, I think, with full biblical force. The first of them is in Acts chapter 2. I want you to look carefully with me at Acts chapter 2 verses 42 and following, but verse 42 in particular. So, this is, of course, the great passage of the day of Pentecost. This is the the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost with such an incredible response to the gospel. And this is Christians gathering together in the earliest chapters of the book of Acts to to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And so, who were they and what did they do? Look at chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. For the sake of time, we're going to stop there, but just look at what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is something that orthodox, truth-loving Christians have understood all the way from the first century until now. We are, if we are orthodox, if we are biblical, if if, if we are genuinely teaching Christianity, then we are teaching exactly what the apostles taught. If we're teaching anything other than what the apostles taught, then that's not Christianity. Now, that requires an interesting question, doesn't it? Who were the apostles And, 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 and where they show up? Well, Let me tell you something today, and I'm going to make this a categorical statement, okay? There are no apostles in this sense alive today. As a matter of fact, the apostles are limited to those men whom Christ appointed as apostles and gave to the church. Now, the apostolic ministry continues among us. How? In the Bible. This is the apostolic testimony. And that's why you read the apostle Paul, and and he was the last of those who who were appointed as apostles. He calls himself the least likely of all to have been an apostle. The, The persecutor of the church named Saul becomes the great titanic theological leader of the church and the evangelist to the Gentiles as Paul. And how does he begin his letters? Well, he says, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I am speaking not on the authority of Paul. Paul writes, I'm speaking on the authority of Christ. So here you have the fact that the early church, where it's found faithful, is devoting itself to the apostles' teaching. Now, I want you to look at one other passage, Ephesians 2. So Acts 2 and Ephesians 2. So this is the Apostle Paul. And by the way, just look at how he began the letter to the Ephesians. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul did not appoint himself an apostle. It was God himself who called him, made him to be an apostle. It was Christ who commissioned him to be an apostle. And as an apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ, look at what he writes about the church in Ephesians chapter two. Let's look at verse 19 and following. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Wow. Wow. So we are told that the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and who? And the prophets. Oh, don't you love the biblical theology there? You know, what's the relationship between the prophets and and the apostles? The apostles preach what the prophets foretold. The prophets are promise, the apostles preach the fulfillment. They are in one line. Isn't that a beautiful affirmation? That's why you've got the Old Testament in your Bible, because it's the Word of God. And here you have this this statement that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is is based upon a foundation, which is the apostles and prophets. Just think about this building. It's got a foundation. You're in California. I'm I'm hoping it's a good one. (laughs) I'm sure it is. Uh, you, get, you, you, you want a foundation that that's going to gonna stand some shaking. Well, well, what is the foundation upon which the church of the Lord Jesus Christ stands? What's the stable, secure foundation by God's design for His church? It is the apostles and the prophets. Now, we don't think about that so much, and, uh, and it's because we're not those who believe that the prophets are saints who are like interceding for us or any of this. We don't have have saints days in which we talk about the apostles. No, because here's how we we believe. We believe that the apostles' ministry, as evangelical Christians, we believe that the apostles' ministry continues through the preaching of the Word of God and the preaching of the gospel that the apostles preached. And of course, This passage in Ephesians chapter 2 is also helpful because it points out that it is Christ Jesus himself who is the cornerstone. In him, the entire structure holds together. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But Christ's gift to his church is the faith, the doctrine, the truth that he gave his church, not just on tablets of stone but in the living, breathing Word of God, the apostolic testimony. Well, I wrote this book, The Apostles' Creed, as the third in a series that I had wanted to write my entire adult life. The the, the trilogy, in this case, of the books I've written are The Ten Commandments and The Lord's Prayer and The Apostles' Creed. Why those three? It is because wherever you find authentic Christianity you have found parents teaching their children those three, those three units of truth together because the, the Lord gave these to His church. And so, if you look to, uh, to Martin Luther in the Reformation, you're going to find that, that when he put together his catechism for children, the way of teaching children the faith, you're going to find the Apostles' Creed, you're going to find the Lord's Prayer, and you're going to find the Ten Commandments. And by the way, Luther, who was so passionate about justification by faith alone and made such a distinction between law and gospel, early in his ministry, he said, we need not actually teach the law, the Ten Commandments. And and yet, when you look at his shorter catechism for children, about the first thing that shows up is the Ten Commandments. And what's the difference there? He had children. (laughs) At that point, you recognize, you got to start with law. That will sink in with some of you this afternoon, but it's sufficient, trust me. But wherever you found authentic Christianity, you found these truths affirmed. So we, we've, we've seen the why, but let's actually look to the creed itself. In other words, well, what, what is the Apostles' Creed? And, and why this creed? Well, let's put it this way. This is the most venerable creed of Christianity. It, it's the one found just about everywhere where you find Christianity. It is, how old is it? Well, you're talking about the, the fourth century in this form but the point is, this is what had emerged far earlier as a summary of what the apostles preached. Now, if we want to say to someone, you know, what's Christianity? Well, it is the faith taught by the apostles. The church is, is it continues in the apostles' doctrine. Well, where do you find that? Well, it's the entire New Testament. And in order to understand it, you have to have the Old Testament. Okay? That is not wrong. It is the best answer possible. But it isn't a concise answer. Why do you need a concise answer? Well, for this reason, just think about this. You've got to understand what doctrines are absolutely essential for a person to be a Christian, for a church to be genuinely Christian. You've got to know. And it's positive and negative. So in other words, all of these doctrines must be taught. None of them can be denied or compromised. Now, that turns out to be absolutely crucial. And that's why the Apostles' Creed has been the most powerful and accurate summary of the Christian faith. Now, as uh, Pastor Scott mentioned, as I wrote in this book, every Christian believes more than this. You believe more than is in the Apostles' Creed. No apology for that, because every church has to have beliefs about well, even the Bible that is, that is, is before this. We, 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 we have to begin with the doctrine of revelation. You, you have doctrines, doctrinal understandings about baptism and church membership that are, are not included in this. And, but, but you do believe all of this. And because all of this is required for biblical Christianity. I'm going to read through the creed. It just takes, it just takes a little bit of time, but just hear it as a unit. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead." I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, that's the classic form translated into English. There are other ways to translate this, but I choose this translation, as the, which is the standard universal English translation, because I want to own every single word. And I'm not going to let other people own some of these words, even though they want to own some of these words. But we'll get to that in just a moment. But notice where the creed be- begins. It begins with belief. I believe. So this isn't a statement just of Christianity is. Okay, so because we're, we're not just concerned with what Christianity is. We're concerned with what Christians believe. And so let, let's say that, uh, that someone comes up to you and says, what exactly is it that Christians believe? Well... You know, the first thing you probably want to talk about, just for, as an issue of priority, is, uh, is the gospel itself. You know, here's what Christians believe. We believe that every single one of us is a sinner, um, catastrophically and eternally separated from God by our sin, but not by anything we could have done, but only through what God did in Christ. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father. He lived a sinless life, and He, and, 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 and he fulfilled all that the prophets had foretold. And, and when His hour had come, He, he was arrested, and, 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 and He was chastised, and, and, and then He was crucified. And on the cross, He paid the penalty in His body. He became the substitute, paying the, the total penalty of our sin, bearing it in His body and His shed blood. And the third day he was raised from the dead, as the Father vindicated him, and salvation is now declared in his name, such that all who believe in his name and repent of their sins shall be saved. That, that, that's Christianity. That's the gospel. But, but when people say, what is it then that Christians believe about Christ? Well, then, okay, who is Jesus Christ? You, we now have to define who Jesus Christ is. And, and how is it exactly that God saves? And, and who exactly is this God? Well, this is the summary. The the Christian church from the very beginning had to have this summary. And and just consider this. Here is another question that comes down to this statement of faith. Many of those early Christians were martyred for their faith. They, They were murdered for their faith. They were willing to die for their faith. They didn't die for a vague doctrine Christianity. They died for the truth of the Christian faith. They knew what they believed and were willing to die for. It begins, I believe. And you know, just look at the New Testament theme. Look at belief. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You, you think of, of uh, Romans chapter 10. You know, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you have the, 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 the absolute assurance that if we confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead we shall be saved. And then it goes on down, they have to believe. And if no one preaches the gospel, then they will not hear the gospel and they will not hearing the gospel will not believe and they will not be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Belief is central. And so you find it over and over again, believe, believe, believe. And so the statement begins, I believe in whom? First of all, in God, God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth. Wow. Do you recognize how absolutely revolutionary that statement is? Because right there, you have drawn the line, brothers and sisters. Who's the God we believe in? The God who made heaven and earth. There's nothing he didn't make. All that is he made. He is Lord over all because he's the God who made heaven and earth. the, The text here begins, the creed begins where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Everything else follows. Now, we're living in a time in which there's a very different truth claim being made about how the cosmos came into existence. What a radical act it is to say to a world increasingly giving itself to confusion, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, deal with it. That's the God we believe in. He's the God who made heaven and earth. And then notice how quickly it shifts. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Okay, so Jesus Christ, very quickly, because this is a summary of what Christians believe. And when when Christians summarize what we believe, we have to get to Jesus quickly. Because that's exactly what the New Testament does. It gets to Jesus quickly. The God who made heaven and earth, God the Father Almighty, and and that means omnipotence. He's he's all-powerful. So it means everything that follows is based upon the fact that this is the power of God revealed, you know, even as the Scripture says, the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. In Romans 1, verse 16, God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, we believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I love this, Jesus Christ. We, we, we read this when we were told that, that it's Christ Jesus in Ephesians 2 who is the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Listen to that. Most evangelical Christians think that's his name. It's not his name. Jesus is his name. Christ isn't his name. Christ is his office. Christ is his title. That's saying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is a doctrinal statement. Jesus of Nazareth, that's a matter of history. Jesus Christ? That's a declaration of theology. I was in a debate with a theological liberal in Washington, D.C. over a quarter century ago. He was a NASA scientist and a theologian. Liberal as could be. I mean, I kept looking left, and he's still off in the distance. And... uh, he was, uh, he was taking a lot of pot shots uh, along the way, and we had an audience, and, and my concern there is not so much just winning debate points, but there are people there, I want to know Christ, and uh, I'll admit, I was, uh, I was agitated. So, this guy said at one point, he said, here's the problem with Dr. Moeller. He believes Christianity is doctrine. Now, I don't believe Christianity is doctrine, but I believe there's no Christianity without doctrine. I believe the, the only Christian church is that which is continuing the apostles' doctrine, Otherwise, you don't know who Christ is. But anyway, he said, this is where, he, this is where he, he, he set me up. He said, I don't want any doctrine. All I want is Jesus Christ. I thought, gotcha. <laughs> and I said, do you think Jesus Christ was a name stenciled on a Judean mailbox? Do you think he got junk mail? Dear Mr. Christ, no, Jesus Christ is a declaration of biblical Christianity. It's a declaration of the gospel. It is to say, Jesus is the Messiah who will reign forever on David's throne, foretold by the prophets, promised by God. That's who he is, Christos, Messiah, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ. How do you define who He is? Well, here, you have to believe at least this much. He is God's only Son, His only Son. Think Gospel of John. Our Lord, Lord, the the most significant word, that name above all names, a title you have in Philippians chapter 2. It is after His obedience to the cross that Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that God has bestowed upon Him the name Lord. who was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Okay, again, boom. How did Jesus come to us? What does the scripture teach? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Do you hear all the truth claims in that? You can say it in just a matter of seconds, but you're saying he wasn't born of any human effort. He was conceived in Mary by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. In the early 20th century, when theological liberalism was first beginning, it began because after the Enlightenment, people in, uh, in, in modern Western societies, it began in Europe, particularly in places like France and Germany, but it, it never stays there. When France and Germany aren't at war with each other, they're generally at war with Christianity. That's a debatable issue. The French and the Germans will file their grievances against me. But you had the radical French philosophers who denied the very existence of truth, and you had the German liberal theologians who said, our, our goal must be to reformulate Christianity in order to meet the expectations of the modern age. And, and it came over to the United States too, of course, with theological liberalism in the early 20th century. And, and you know the doctrine that they attacked first? The virgin birth of Christ. Because they put it this way, they said, this just, this is, I, I love the, the word one of them used, heightened supernaturalism. Heightened supernaturalism? That's, that's kind of like radical infinity, right? Uh, it's kind of like a very long forever. Uh, there's no such thing as heightened supernaturalism. Supernaturalism is supernaturalism. And that's exactly what we're being told. This, this, is, this is God's unilateral act. It come, what, is, what do we have in the Prologue of the Gospel of John? Not by the will of man, but by the will of the Father. And So, the, by the way, there is no Christianity about the virgin birth. And I'm writing on that, another work. I just ponder this. If Jesus Christ was not, as the Scripture says, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary... Then there's some other explanation for his birth. Just think about that. These are two irreducible options. Either this is true or something else is true. If something else is true, he cannot be this endless Christ who would die on the cross to bear the penalty for our sins. Christianity is a whole. it's, 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 It's a comprehensive whole. You can't just take something out without destroying the whole. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Okay. Now, there, notice something else. If you're going to tell somebody what Christianity is, it's not like you're going to take a bunch of doctrines and say, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You notice this is narrative? Have you noticed this is, this is a, a storyline? Because the Bible's a storyline. I mean, even... Even the, the most precious summary of, of the gospel we have, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's not just a series of words. That's a narrative. It tells us what God has done, space, time, and history. So also is this summary of the Christian faith. This is what what God has done, God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered. We as evangelicals, when we talk about what Christ died for us, we rightly get to the fact that he died on the cross for our sins, and and that's, that's the crucial issue. But the saving acts of Christ include his sinless life and his sufferings for us right up until the moment of his death. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Notice the space-time history here. It's not like this happened once upon a time. There's no once upon a time here. There's time here. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. You can look up Pontius Pilate. You can Google Pontius Pilate today. That, I mean, And by the way, the only reason you Google Pontius Pilate is because Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Those are three biblical words summarized here in their correct sequence. He was crucified on a cross, just as the prophets have foretold. He, he died. He physically died. He did not appear to be dead. He died and was buried. Again, the Scriptures had foretold this. He, he, he was buried. He was in the tomb, as we know, for three days. The next line, he descended into hell. Now, some people don't like this, and they don't like this because in, uh, in the centuries between the 4th century and now, there have been some people who've just gone into theological flights of fancy about what happened when Jesus descended to hell. And a part of this is the problem with the English language, because what this really means is that he descended into Hades, the realm of the dead. All it really means to say is he really died. He was laying in a tomb he descended into the realm of the dead. As you know your New Testament, there are different words for hell. There's Gehenna and there's Hades. He did not descend to Gehenna. He descended to Hades. In other words, he died just like everyone else, every human being who ever died. He was in the realm of the dead. But the third day he arose again from the dead. That's that great declaration. Up from the grave he arose. Christ the Lord is risen today. The third day, he arose again from the dead. If if, if the Christian faith ended with, he was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell, there would be no Christian faith. There would be no gospel. There's only a gospel because the third day, he arose again from the dead. And then the biblical sequence, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father almighty again many evangelical Christians we don't think about that we don't have really good hymns about this but do you realize that right now we are only we are only forgiven our sins right now right now right now because Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father almighty because here's the, here's the truncated theology dangerously that a lot of evangelicals hold and that is that Jesus Christ was crucified dead and buried He arose from the dead, and he's coming again, okay? But there is a ministry, a necessary ministry for us right now that Jesus Christ is fulfilling in what theologically is called his session. So this is the doctrine of the session of Christ. And you say, well, I've never heard of a doctrine of the session of Christ. Well, that's because it's neglected. But what does it mean? Session comes from the Latin for sitting. It's It's the sitting of Christ. You say, well, what difference does that make? It means that right now, He intercedes for us with the Father. He pleads for the saints. So you say, we believe in intercessory prayer. Well, how do we pray? We pray to the Father through the Son and through no one else. (laughs) Biblical Christianity has no other intermediaries or mediators or co-redemptrixes or co-mediatrixes. We don't pray through Mary. We don't pray through the saints. We pray through Christ, the New Testament defines. And the Father hears our prayers. Why? Because they are, as the New Testament says, the prayers of the saints. That's us, by the way. That's all believers. And it is Jesus... Who intercedes for us before the Father. And this is such a crucial affirmation. That's why we're going to forget doctrines. We're going to leave doctrines out. We're going to take doctrines out of their New Testament symmetry if we don't summarize them rightly, which is why I'm so thankful for this extremely important summary. It reminds us you can't define Christianity without referring to what Jesus is doing right now. Otherwise, we're doomed. So, you can think of it as past, present, and future, okay? Right here, Jesus Christ, past, present, and future, past. The last statement about the past is He ascended into heaven. And remember what Jesus says in the Gospel of John to the disciples. He says, it's actually better for you that I go. Isn't that remarkable? It's actually better for us spiritually. And you'll think about this for a moment, you'll understand it. It is infinitely better for us spiritually that Jesus Christ is not with us in his body, but is in his resurrected body sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty interceding for us. It is because if he had not done all that was prophesied and promised by the Father's command, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. But we're not. And this is why, right now, Jesus can promise us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How? Why? Because right now, he's seated seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's, That's present. So past, last statement about the past, he descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven. That's all past. The statement of the present, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and then the statement of the future, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead. He's coming in judgment. Now, he's coming to establish his kingdom in its fullness. He's he's coming to claim his saints. All that, yes, but the main New Testament theme about the coming of Christ in this second coming is that he's coming in judgment. Just read the book of Revelation. And and by the way, you say, well, why would you summarize it in judgment? Because the Bible summarizes it in judgment, because that judgment is twofold. Remember that you have the Lamb's Book of Life. All whose names are found within the Lamb's Book of Life are with Christ forever, redeemed in glory. We will know the new heaven and the new earth, even the new Jerusalem sent down from heaven. We're going to be with Christ forever. We're going to be in the presence of the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit And those whose names are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. You see, when we think of judgment, we often think of the lake of fire. Yes, that's God's judgment. But God's judgment is also the saints reigning with Christ forever because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his absolute obedience to the Father and all that the Scripture tells us. God's judgment is not just in heaven, excuse me, not just in hell, it's also in heaven. In other words, we tend to think of judgment merely as negative, but God's judgment is actually the great biblical summary statement because the gospel explains, as we have in the book of Romans chapter 3, how because of the cross And the resurrection of Christ, the Father is revealed to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So glorious. All those whose names are going to be written in the book of life, and I pray your name is written there because you know Christ and have come to saving faith in Him and profess that faith. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That's everybody, quick and the dead. I can remember when I first heard that as a child. King James, the quick and the dead. What is that? What about the slow? Are they between the quick and the dead? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But as you know, that's simply King James English for the alive and the dead. It means no one will escape that resurrection and that judgment. But then there's a series of summary statements, and and as we look at these quickly, you understand these are the final summary statements that are necessary for recognizing biblical Christianity. I believe in the Holy Spirit, okay? So one of the most crucial doctrines, indeed, I'd have to say, the crucial theological doctrine of the Christian church is what we call the Trinity. In other words, the crucial question is, how do we know who the real God is? And how does this real God reveal himself in Scripture? He reveals himself as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? That means that there is no such thing as a non-Trinitarian Christian. A non-Trinitarian is known as a heretic, and a heretic is the enemy of the gospel. The church had to work hard on this in its early centuries. It It had to intensely search the Scriptures because... Getting this right is is absolutely crucial. So let me give you the easiest summary of how to understand the Trinity, okay? Now, we'll never exhaust the Trinity because we'll never be able to exhaust our knowledge of God, and and we are humbled by that, but we have to believe at least this. So the Bible says these things about God. The Bible says that God is one. And the Bible says that the Father is God. And the Bible says that the Son is God. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is God. All four of those statements are clearly made in Scripture, and they are non-contradictory. That's the Trinity. That's the Trinity. God doesn't sometimes show up as the Father, other times show up as the Son, other times show up as the Spirit. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus, remember again, in the Gospel of John, he told the disciples, you will be blessed. It is to your benefit that I leave, for I'm sending you the helper. Now, evangelical Christians in the 21st century in the United States, we are aware of excesses in the name of the Holy Spirit. And they're legion. But we also have to be convicted where we have an absence of affirmation and celebration of the Holy Spirit. And, and the work that's described in the Scripture. So how, how important is the Holy Spirit to us? We wouldn't be able to have the, the Bible except for the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Bible itself tells us that the Holy Spirit moved men of old to write. So the, this is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, God breathed His Word through the Holy Spirit. How important is the Holy Spirit? No one comes to Christ but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to open the heart in order that we might believe. How, how are we kept in Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit, part of His ministry, is, is right now holding us to Christ. And, and again, well, what do we do when we're preaching? We're preaching the Word of God, and how does the Word of God get to human hearts? Because the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Word, is Lord over the Word and takes the Word into human hearts. How do Christians mature? It's because the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God inside the Christian to develop a mature Christian, that's how dependent we are upon the Holy Spirit. The next statement, the Holy Catholic Church. I told you there's a word. that's going to jump out at you. The Holy Catholic Church. Now, there are, uh, there are evangelical churches that would, uh, that would change that to say, I believe in the Holy Universal Church. I want to tell you why I leave the word Catholic. It's because I'm not going to let the Roman Catholics have the word Catholic. All right? Because Catholic means more than just everywhere, okay? Catholic means everywhere through all time. I'm not going to be a part of a church that began in 1921 when the church into which I was baptized was organized. uh, The people who belong to a church founded in 1921 are going to hell, all right? I must belong to a church that was established by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 16 when he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've got to be a member of that church, that's the only church. And that means that Christ has established one church throughout all the world. Ultimately we're all members of the body of Christ, we're united with Christ, it's his church. And it's not only through Space, it's also through time. Isn't that glorious? So when we meet Peter and, uh, and James and John, we're going to be members of the same church they are. We're, we're, we're part of Christ's church. And, and when we meet Athanasius and, and other Augustines, the, the, some of the great. Figures and preachers of, of of the the early centuries of the church, we're going to belong to the same church. We're not to belonging to different churches. They're united in Christ. We're part of Christ's church. And uh, and when we meet Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and you just go through the line, we're we're all part of the same church. And I'm not going to give the Roman Catholic Church the word Catholic. I just We'll make it into a little, like the Reformers did. The Reformers kept this word. It was just no longer capital C. It's little C. It's not the name. And by the way, this is the denial of the Reformers that the Roman Catholic Church is, as the Reformers said, the only things that are true about the Roman Catholic Church, the only word that's true is Roman. That'll hit some of you about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And as the reformer said, if Roman precedes Catholic, it's not Catholic. I'll hit some of you about 415. But what it is to say that if you're rooting the church in a place and then saying Catholic, then you're not Catholic. But the true church is Catholic. But you can use the word universal, but I don't want to give up the time. I don't want to give up the time. I'm a part of the same church as the reformers and the Puritans and the, the fathers of the church, most importantly, as the apostles. The communion of saints, isn't that sweet? We're, that's the same thing. We're part of that same church. And there's a communion. There is a sweet communion. We sing about this in, in great hymns, the, the communion that we have with the saints. And, and I, I remember as a little boy in a Baptist church thinking, who are those people? And the more I came to know them, the more I came to know. And by the saints, again, we're not talking about canonical saints of the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking about Christians, the the holy ones, as we're described in the New Testament, the saints of God. There's a communion. And you know what? This means that there's a communion right now. This is what's what's so amazing. Right now, it's not a communion merely in the future. It's a right now. So right now, we are in communion with all those who have died in Christ before us. This will say something very strange about me. I don't think so. Not in the history of Christianity, but it it might sound strange to you. I am drawn to cemeteries. Mary and I recently took some fellow believers, a good many, uh, to the United Kingdom, where I did a series of lectures. We toured England and Scotland, and I did tours on the history of Christianity as and for us, that's so important because we're the inheritors of English-speaking Christianity. So, almost everything we know is directly traceable to events that took place there in, in England and, and in Scotland first. And uh, one of the most moving experiences for me was going to Bunhill Fields. As some of you may have been to Bunhill Fields. Uh, Bunhill is, uh, is, is probably uh, a, a linguistic slip. It was probably Bone Hill in the medieval era. There, there are… There are over 100,000 people buried in this cemetery, and it's a, it's, it would easily fit within this room because it was, it was a hill of bones, and it was where the nonconformists were buried. And that means those who were outside the Church of England who would not recognize the, uh, the theology and the practice of the Church of England, which meant me, Baptists, all those who were separatists and nonconformists who were outside the Church of England couldn't be buried in the beautiful cemeteries of the elite in London instead. Bone Hill, Bun Hill Fields, and, and so we had the group there in Bun Hill Fields, and, and I, got a, I had a chance to lecture, but I didn't lecture, I preached, because I was just overcome. I was standing at the grave of John Bunyan, and standing at the grave of John Bunyan, I was just overcome. I mean, I'm standing next to the earthly remains of John Bunyan, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, and, and all around me are, are others, uh, the... the, the uh, Mrs. Wesley is is right over here. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, right over here. You you know, so many of the great Puritans are are buried right here. But I'm standing at this grave of John Bunyan. And I was just so overcome. And so I I preached just a, a message of Christian hope and a reminder of the fact that we're a part of the same church as John Bunyan. And he's dead. And we're in communion with him right now by the mystery of Christ's love for his saints we're all a part of the same church right now because they're not amongst the undead they are those who are alive in Christ even now this also means that we can die safely and not be apart from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because if we're united to Christ we're united to his church so we can die safely and we can wait as we sleep from the body will be separated and present with the Lord. But Jesus Christ himself referred to death as sleep, those who are safe in him. We can sleep and await what we know is coming as the fulfillment of all of Christ's promises. And we don't wait alone. We're not and will not be with Christ alone, but together. The forgiveness of sins. Now again, evangelical Christians need to walk through this and recognize that sometimes when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, we act as if our need for the forgiveness of sins ended when we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not true. John says, we must continually pray for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're given the promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John says, if we say we have no sin in us, we lie. He wasn't writing to unbelievers. He was writing to Christians. So we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And by the way, that doesn't just mean we believe in our need for the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because it's all promised in Christ. Who's Christ? Well, the one we just confessed. That's the Christ who even right now, who intercedes for us, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. You bet we do. The resurrection of the body. Christianity does not promise us an eternity with Christ in a disembodied state. It tells us that we will be like Him. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ rose as the first fruits of those who would follow Him. As He is now, so we will be. Christ is not right now in a disembodied state. He's in a glorified state. He has a glorified body. In God's mystery of salvation and in His perfect will, He has willed that we shall be embodied forever. But it's not going to be this body with all of its mess and frailty. And I can just tell you, I'm 60 years older, and so far as I can tell, nothing gets better. (laughs) And that's just the way of this flesh. I'm looking forward to a glorified body like Christ. And when we, we are with Him, the resurrection of the body is just a, a part of the Christian promise. And, and let me tell you why this is so important. And, and, and we'll look at this, it, it we'll consider this, every single one of these statements is thrown at some heresy. You have to understand that. There were people who were teaching some other gospel, as Paul says in the, in the book of Galatians. And, and so, why, why the resurrection of the body? It's because one of the earliest groups of heretics who were preaching a counterfeit Christianity, they were known as the Gnostics. And they said that the body was the evil, the material world was the evil world, and the spiritual world is the good world. And they were denying that that heaven would be bodies because they thought the material world was, 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 was itself evil. But the Bible doesn't say that. What does God say? God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, what does he say after every day of creation? It's good. The story of Christianity is not our escape from the material world. It is our salvation into a material world perfected by God in Christ. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Okay, so I was 10 years old. I was in the fifth grade. And this threw me for, well, it threw me into probably becoming a theologian. The pastor mentioned life everlasting. I already believed it. I was a Christian. I already believed in eternal life, but I just, it never really hit me. And you know, when you get into double digits of age, there's a psychological, physiological set of changes that comes in, in the double digits. in this early adolescence and throughout adolescence is the development of what's called uh, critical analytical thinking and just a summary of this is that a four-year-old thinks, but a 14-year-old thinks about thinking. Those are two different things, okay? That's why you don't have, you don't have many, like, existentialist four-year-olds. They're not walking around going, you know, what what are you doing? I'm thinking about the meaning of the universe. You know, you, if you've got a four-year-old thinking about the meaning of the universe, call me. <laughs> but a 14-year-old's trying to figure out, what is all this? I mean, this is, this the world's weird. Uh, I'm broken. Uh, you know, so that that Complex cognitive reasoning. And then you throw out a word, and the kids heard the word, but it didn't… It, didn't just, it just went past him or her at age 8, but all of a sudden at age 10, 11, 12, things… Like so, pastor mentioned everlasting and eternity, and I'm thinking, well, okay, everlasting. That means, hmm, ever. Lasting. Eternity. Ten-year-old little owl was trying to figure out eternity… And I'm thinking, well, how, how, can, how can it just go on forever? So I asked people, and they didn't help me much, because eternity is not understandable to a temporal mind. And, and we tend to think of eternity as just a clock that never winds down. That's not it. It's a realm beyond time. In fact, we, we actually say, when time will be no more. And I'm thinking, well, I can't imagine that. And it's because in this life we have a ticking time within us all the time. We feel it. We feel it in our bodies. We experience it. I mean, this is today. There was yesterday. Lord willing, there will be tomorrow. And, uh, and and we experience this temporality all the time. Here it is. It's uh it's what? It's it's headed towards oh no, it's a little after ten o'clock. Pacific time, which means it's a little after one o'clock, Eastern time. And there are people for whom it's already tomorrow. I know. You can understand why as a ten-year-old, I'm thinking, world's weird. But I can't think of eternity or life everlasting except for the fact that God is eternal and God is everlasting. So it turns out that the Apostles' Creed, as this summary of the Christian faith, actually ends where it begins. If you believe in God, I believe in God the Father Almighty who is eternal and timeless uncreated and everlasting, self-existent and glorious, infinite in all of His perfections, then you understand that when you conclude by saying, and the life everlasting, you're just saying life with Him. That's all you really need to know. You're not going to figure out eternity. The physicists at Cambridge University aren't going to figure out eternity. Eternity is God. It comes back to where it begins. Every one of these statements, as I said, is thrown at some kind of heresy, and the church has been confronted with heresy and false gospels from the beginning. The the, the necessity of knowing true Christianity in age of counterfeits is not new, but let's face it, it is acutely new. All around us are false gospels, all around us are heretical teachings, and again, our authority is the Bible. That's why it's the Bible we preach. It's the word of God that we preach. And, and every statement of the Christian faith, every summary of the Christian faith has to be tested by Scripture. Every single statement, tested by Scripture. We stand upon the Scripture. It's, we teach and preach the Scripture. But we've got to know how to summarize the Christian faith. We have to summarize what Christians believe, what all Christians must believe. All Christians believe more than this, but no Christian believes less than this. And you say, well, you've said something about every part of this creed except one word, and that's the last word, amen. You look at that and say, well, we say that. I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church where that was baritone and bass. The pastor would say something, and there would be an amen coming from the balcony and from the deacons on the front row. It was baritone and bass, amen. And what did it mean? What were those those deacons in a Baptist church saying when the pastor declared the gospel and somebody said amen? They were saying, we agree. They were saying, it is so. To the glory of God, that's it. And that's why you see amen show up again and again in the Bible. It just means, again, it's, it's, it's a unifying statement. That's right. We believe. Amen. And that reminds us that when we are summarizing the Christian faith as believers, we aren't just summarizing the Christian faith in order to say, hey, we got this right. That actually isn't how it begins, and that isn't how it ends. Christianity is not a set of truth claims to which we merely give intellectual assent. They are the beliefs that constitute Christianity itself, that explain how it is that we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and why all our promises with Him are secure. And that's why it begins, I believe. And that's why it ends, amen. And how's that as a point on which to conclude? All of our Christian life is lived between, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all that is therein confessed together, and amen. Amen. I believe, we believe, amen. And as the church I grew up in used to say at particular points of emphasis, and all God's people said, amen.